As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen I'm never quitting on my mission, I'ma roll with what I'm giving Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing Better watch the way you going, better go in the right direction In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings And I know that for certain, keep on working, open curtains Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version I'm never gon' give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah you're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show on WNHHLP 103.5 SM, your home for community radio. Hello, how are you this morning, New Haven, New York, wherever we're reaching out at? Good morning, good morning, happy, fr- happy Friday. Um, I think that song is just um perfect song for both um both of my guests today never gonna give up fall down we getting up and that's that's what we do we're getting up um so uh, I want to invite you to have a conversation with us around many things around incarceration and re-entry and all the things that we um um face uh, we people face because we when I say we because when we have someone incarcerated, um, many times we're doing time right along with them. So, so um, um, uh, I want to introduce Ms. Marisol Garcia and Mr. Ray Boyd. Uh, both um, people um, now have Yale affiliations. And so I want you to, you know, just tell the community a little bit about who you are, what you're doing, and your association with Yale. And we're going to do ladies first. <laughs> I was actually going to say Ray. Um, So I actually have multiple affiliations with Yale. I actually first was affiliated as an undergrad at Trinity. I had reached out to the Yale Safe Center for Health and Justice as an intern, and I was one of their research and public public policy interns. Then I ended up doing the Yale Law Access Program at Yale that helped prepare me. Uh, It's a program that's helped uh, prepare people from marginalized communities, formerly incarcerated, BIPOC communities to have a pathway into law school, how to prepare, how to take the LSATs, how to coach, how to prepare all your documents. And I'm actually a 1L at Vermont Law School this year, actually finishing up my first year. And my biggest affiliation is actually through the Yale Prison Education Initiative as a college to career fellow that has enabled me, um, I'm actually finishing up my fellowship in June. It allowed me to have access to all the resources at Yale from the the Lyman Center, the Justice Collaboratory, the SAFE Center, um, I can take classes, you know, whether through credit, um, when I was doing my master's program, but it allows me to interact with people from throughout Yale, but even throughout a wider network, through alumni, other professors at other universities, internationally and nationally, in any issue, I specifically am more mass incarceration, public health and public policy. But, you know, we have different fellows that are artists and other people that, um, whether it's artistry, um, seminary, it runs the gambit. So I think it allowed me the ability to get in and test the waters and figure out exactly that I'm exactly on the right track with policy. Okay. And you're on the steering committee of? Stop Solitary Connecticut. Okay. Don't forget that part. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. <laughs> okay, thank you, Maricel. 
Uh, I want to uh, bring on Ray Boyd, another upcoming uh, Yale affiliate, and tell us about what you're doing these days, Ray, because I hear you, a lot of stuff in the news. Oh, it, um, over at Yale, um, I am the, the, the pro program manager for New Visions for Public Safety. We're doing a Days for Justice program where we bring in uh, – reading material and books to uh, county jail facilities. And um, we're also doing the Books to Prison project that I oversee, where we bring it every month, we bring at least 10 cases to 10 to 15 cases of books to a correctional facility here in the state of Connecticut. And we're also covering the Danbury Federal uh, Prison here in Connecticut. So um, yeah, we just, I mean, reading is, is was one of my keys to, to my success currently. You know, um, when I went to prison, I was a, a seventh grade dropout reading on a third or fourth grade level. Um, you know, I, I found that uh, reading what what I what I what I was hearing when I was younger that reading was fundamental actually became true while I was incarcerated. You know, and we know the importance of the literacy rate and, and that our young men have and women have while they're serving their time. Um, so we just try to um, encourage them to become educated so that they can become better citizens when they come back into the community. We also do some symposiums that we, we've done on campus. We've done the Visitor Room Project. Last night, we just co-sponsored Black Trivia Night here in Yale. You know, so it's just a whole lot of things that we do. And on, on another front, you know, um, with Next Level, the things that we're doing here in New Haven is innovative, hasn't been done yet with the warm line where individuals can call home, I mean, can call whether they're incarcerated or if their family or loved ones of those that are incarcerated to try to understand the carceral system and what their friends or loved ones may be going through at any period of their incarceration from, from the day of their arrest um, to uh, post-conviction. Um, so... Yeah, that's 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 what I do. <laughs> okay, um, uh, there's more you're doing, but I want to get back to the reading, bringing books in. Um, I know there was a time you couldn't bring books in; they had to go through the bookstore. So you're allowed to bring books in. Yes, we're um we 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 donate directly to the libraries and the and the, and the system. So uh, yeah, some days I I may drop off like legal books. I I tend to drop them off at the headquarters in Weathersfield because there's only uh so many facilities that now constitute ha as having a law library. So um, we try to make sure that those books get into the hands of the men and women at York, uh, as well as McDougal and Osborne Correctional Facility. Oh, okay. So if, if I wanted to donate to that project uh, as an individual and as Stop Solitary, uh, how do we go about doing that? Donating books? So or if one wants contributing? to... Uh, if you wanted to and if you wanted to donate, um, we're always taking donations. And I, where, where would those be sent to? My uh, he froze. You, you froze, uh, Ray, so we missed you. Ray, you might have to go in and come back go out and come back in because we can't hear you. I hope he can hear me saying that. But anyway, so we'll go on and, and wait till um he can get back in because I wanted him to talk about the transition house that they have 
uh, that's coming up. Um, He's there. Oh, so you're back, Ray? Okay, because you, you froze, and so we didn't hear how to contribute. Okay. You're breaking up. One second. Okay. Because I think that's great now that we can uh, bring books in because I know it's it, it's very much needed and then everybody's not going to take the time to go to, you know, to this bookstore and purchase and send it through Weathersfield, whatever you had to do in the past. So it's good that there's an outlet now that uh, we can contribute to the, um, sending books um, into people because reading is very fundamental. Um, so when he comes back in, I want to have him talk about uh, uh, his transition house is going to be um, opening soon. So let's talk about, uh, and, and that goes right into um, um, a public hearing we had recently around um, public housing, um, I mean, about housing period as it relates to people coming out of prison and the background checks that people do to keep people out of housing. That was huge. Um, I, you know, actually testified um, uh, on that, that. And so I wish we had had more people because there's thousands of us out there um having problem with housing and then to have have them use background checks um for housing is even worse um can you just talk about your situation uh with housing when you came home was it a problem for me actually yeah actually it was so the fact that um first of all i came out to hartford where i knew nobody so i came out to an area that was not something no area i knew um, and I tried, first of all, parole made it very difficult because this was at the, right at the onset of the pandemic. So this is when they were trying to shuffle out a lot of people and they were holding up care of like, if you can find housing or if you are able to, you know, be able to take care of yourself, you should be able to go out in the community. So first of all, parole would not let me um, go out on my own. They required I had a sponsor. So at the time, again, I didn't know anybody in Hartford. Um, and I started seeing someone through the job I had, and it ended up being one of these things that they required that he become my sponsor. Now, he was living in public housing at the time, and we went through like a four-month period where public housing was like, you know, you, you guys need to be married, there, you need to be on the lease, there's no girlfriend, there's none of this. So I was put in a position where I couldn't go out on my own because the parole people said to me I could not, I couldn't sell sponsor. Then I was put in a position where I was putting my future in the life of someone I barely knew. I had only been home for like not even six to nine months. And that's, you know, as we already know, that's not long enough to be able to know someone, not mm -hmm. let alone live with somebody, especially coming from being, you know, down for five, you know, minimum five years, let alone mm -hmm. anybody who's down longer. Um, and I ended up stepping out, you know, where I could have went back to prison by marrying this man in secret um you know and even then housing denied me anyway because of my background so not only did i put myself at risk and i tied myself to somebody that it took me three and a half years to untie myself from mm. um you know poor decisions but it was because i was placed in a situation that pushed me to make decisions or choices before i was ready right. because if not where else was i going to live right 
then it it was I had to go to a a resettlement program that was very heavily um not in the best of neighborhoods and then it ended up being where I couldn't find a place to live because again nobody would give me an opportunity even though I had a job I was in school my credit score was above 700 and I had more than enough money to you know I was working two jobs I was I had more than enough money to be able to put first last and an additional month still no go it was your your colonel background blah 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 and I, I didn't have any other choice. So I stayed with this individual and I had no choice but to buy a place of my own. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even have a chance to to rent or any of the sort because if I didn't buy, I wouldn't have anywhere to live. I would have sat at another at a facility, you know, for what, another year? And then what if they kicked me out because it, it was only a certain amount of time? Right. I, had, I had no option, you know, so at you that ended point. So buying, purchasing? Had, yeah. I, oh, okay. And not everybody has that right, ability right. to do that, you know, I, but I was also working three jobs. I killed mm-hmm. myself for almost two years. Yeah. But again, I was living with somebody who, you know, it puts you in domestic violence situations, you know, right. like, I don't think people recognize that the choices that people get put into in these circumstances, right? You can, you can get hurt, you can go back to prison. Yeah. It doesn't All make that it to have a place to stay. Yeah. Yeah. So I want I want to bring Ray back in. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, hopefully this time it won't break up. So uh, oh, no. we were just talking about the housing when you come out of incarceration, the, uh, how problematic that is. But I also yeah. want to go back before you talk about that. I want to go back to how can we contribute to this uh, venture of getting books into okay. prison? Um, if you want to contribute, you can either reach me by cell phone or email. And I'll set. We can uh, arrange a pickup date. If you need boxes to box up your books, you know, I'll I'll drop the boxes off to you, to, to package the books, and I can pick them up at a later date. But folks can reach me at um, my email at Yale. It's Ray R A Y dot Boyd B O Y D at Yale dot edu, and also my cell phone number is two zero three six six eight seven nine two eight. So you can, can you reach repeat me at- that. Can you repeat that just to make sure people get it? Yes. My email is ray.boyd at yale.edu. That's R-A-Y dot B-O-Y-D at yale.edu. And my cell phone number is 203-668-7928. Thank you so much, Ray. So all of you people that uh, out here listening, you hear, this is something that you can do to help incarcerated people. Um, yes. and get books to them. And those books do do they have to be brand new out of the store or can no? They-, they don't. They don't have to be brand new. We just ask that they be in in usable condition. Yes. And it's important for the community at large to know that you know in our neighbors for justice. Uh, you know the folks that are in these county jails are actually our neighbors. So it's important mm-hmm. that we we invest in 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 the product that we would would like to see coming out of out of these prisons you know what i'm saying we want folks to come out better than they than they were when in there so it's important that we keep in mind that you know these are our neighbors these are our family members and some of our close friends that are being housed in these situations so why not contribute if you have something there and invest in your company we're not asking for a monetary investment Mm -hmm. you know a books is a small thing a small donation that we can do and we can begin to you know invoke change in our community 
by just, you know, donating something small as a book. Thank you so much, Ray. Um, as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, there's so many things people say, I want to help. I want to help. What can I do? What can I do? And yeah. this is something you can do. You don't have yeah. to show up. So there's no excuse about, mm -hmm. oh, I don't have transportation because you're going to pick the books up. For I'll, I'll pick the books up. So, I'll pick the yeah. books up. You're not asking for money. You know. Just you got books. Yeah. He'll come by and pick them up for and you. Pick them so up. There's no yeah. excuse. That's something you can do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now I want to get back to the housing. We just heard from Marisol, her experience. Um, It's unbelievable what people have to go through just to have a house because yes. you've been incarcerated. Um, so talk about um, the opportunities you are, uh, your organization or yourself is um, up, um, coming up with for people coming out of prison. Well, we just signed a, a, a 10 year lease on a two year, I mean, a two family home. And, you know, we've been partnering with the city. The city has been for, um, graceful enough to give us a grant to refurbish this house. Um, we'll have seven bedrooms. Of course, you know, we have a, a, a contract with the DOC. Where we'll be working, um, doing program in Manson Youth. And, um, you know, I'm a co-founder of the True Reentry Program. So, of course, I want to dedicate um, some of those rooms to those spaces so they, that these young men can uh, have a successful transition back into the community. Um, also, the, the remaining beds will be for adults transitioning back in the community. You know, some of our senior mentors and just guys that are doing good in the system that we can um, use and put in these places to, again, assist the young men as they're transitioning back into the community and, and uh, utilize that holistic approach where, you know, being our brother's keeper as opposed to having someone um, from the DOC on site every day um, you know, being threatening, telling you that you have to have a job or you're going to get locked up. I mean, of course, mm -hmm. we want these young men to work, but we don't want to put the pressure, too much pressures on them that may cause them to digress or or uh, or uh, recidivate. Right. Because for me, um, I used to sit at reentry tables. I just stopped because, you know, I hear people talking about, uh, you know, focus on jobs and housing. And as a clinical social worker, I was more focused on uh, I think they need to debrief from the experience. It's very traumatic mm -hmm. being incarcerated. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, you get institutionalized. Um, yes. There's a lot of stress put on these people. A lot of mental illness comes out of there. So how about we make number one thing that we focus on is how do we help these people become human beings again? And nobody was having that conversation. So I just got tired of going to the reentry tables. But I think that's one of the most important things people need to know. People are and, forever changed when they get sit inside of those cages and we yeah. need to make sure they get their life back. And that's one of the key reasons why Next Level didn't want to open a halfway house. We, we chose to open up a transition sober house because we want to give individual that home experience mm -hmm. that they may have not gotten um, in a home of dysfunction or, you know, where they were staying at prior to their incarceration. So the individuals that are moving and that will be moving into the house when we do our ribbon cutting um, will be coming into a space of their own. They will not be sharing a bunk bed with oh, someone in the room. Nice. This will be their own, you know, home feel to, uh, you know, their transition and their reentry coming out. So they, they won't have to, you know, you won't have to worry about being responsible for no one else's stuff in your room because it will be your room for the duration that you are there. And also, if I may add that, um, 
a mentor of mine, former counselor Moore from the Cheshire Correctional Facility who passed away just recently in, a, in an auto accident. Um, we have the blessings of his wife and his fraternity will be naming um, the transition house after him because he always stood for second chances for violent offenders such as myself. And I think it's a great way to honor him and, 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 and you know, keep moving forward the idea and the vision that we have for next level. This is exciting. And as Maricel talked about, um, we need to um, uh, look at how we can accommodate women because I know there's a lot more spaces for men, but I mean, it makes sense. There's a whole lot more men in prison, but we yeah. still want to make sure that we have something to accommodate women. And, and, and I would see a vision of, of something like that for children that are coming back home. Because sometimes yeah. our our kids are that parents probably don't even know what's happening to their kids behind bars. They have yeah. no probably have no idea what they're doing to our kids, and those kids are going to come out pretty messed up too. Yeah. And so they're going to need somebody who can understand what they've been through and how they have to get back their humanity and be social, be around other people. And we need something for children. And then on top of that, um, the the higher vision is. Uh, especially when it comes to housing, is uh, think about opening up another place for people who not who haven't been incarcerated or maybe Definitely. have been incarcerated a long time ago, but that people still hold that against them. A 20-year-old criminal record can keep yeah. you from getting the house today. So we have so much, so much yeah. issues around housing. So Remember? if I can address that real quick, um, so Next Level, one thing about Next Level, it's an, it's an all-inclusive club. It's not a, a man's club. It's not a girl's club. It's a, it's a men and women's club. We, we service men and women. And I think that's what um, separates us from most reentry programs. A lot of them, mm -hmm. when they start, um, they either start for men or for women. And we're trying to bring the service to both men and women because we know the importance of it. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think a lot of of uh, what women have to experience upon reentry is 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 compounded um, because they don't have the support that most men have. Like they mm -hmm. they, um, I was fortunate to have my wife and my family to help me get through and some friends. But I think when women come home, it's just them on their own to do what they have to do. And I think that more support needs to be there. That's why we chose to make it all inclusive. Um, and we are looking to, 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 to um, be able to support these women coming home by, you know, opening up that house and we will eventually get there. And we are, um, I don't want to uh, mention it right now. We are looking mm -hmm. for, we, well, we have located space for those that have, uh, you know, been out and uh, know what it's like to suffer and go through the transition of coming home and with all of these barriers put in place. And we look to have that space very soon. I'm an optimistic person, you know, uh, optimism came from, you know, some of the first meetings we had about next level and look where we are now, you know, um, I'm just, I'm just happy that we're, 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 where we're at and I'm able to, you know, give back to my community. You know, okay, Barbara, Marisol, did you want to say something before we move yeah, on? Yeah, you know, Ray points out, as do you, you guys talk about this, like that in-between place. And, you know, it, it hits that, like, not a lot of people have that support. And especially, you know, Ray did a significant amount of time, but he's not the only one. There's been so many people because of the criminal justice reform. People are coming home. And that shock of coming home, but not, you know, coming home, whether it's to family or 
to a program or to you know or to a halfway house or, or getting out there's that weird awkward space in between because as you say that a space where people don't have to share a room people don't have to share a space people being prepared to come home but being able to as you said debrief from being in a cage right. like this is where my shout out or my challenge to doc is you with all that space with instead of using it in a punitive fashion like you know these like northern was and like how they used you know half of york it's the, the east side of york is open but they've let it fall into disrepair with these rat infested buildings or mice infested buildings rather than utilizing them to help people who've done long-term time settle into an idea that okay i'm going home soon these are you know this is not how life is all the time and kind of de-stress and stopping that hypervigilant state that they don't even prepare them for nobody wants to talk about it you know like raise one of the few maybe a handful of people that i know who's jumped into this work you know feed in did what he's done but not a lot of people are willing to do that. A lot of people, once they leave, they're like, dude, I never want to talk about this. I never want to deal with this again. Mm-hmm. How do you help people like that? How do you help them debrief from that when DOC makes them, you know, they're, they're murderers, they're criminals, they're this, they're that, they're inhuman. But yet they then get dropped into society where guess what? They're the exact same thing. They're just not in a, in, in, in a cage anymore. But mm-hmm. how do they acclimate to that? DOC doesn't help them. Society rejects them. And sometimes they don't want anything to do with, there's nothing to prepare them for that. Where's that in-between place? And I mean, before they get out to a program like RAISE or something Mm -hmm. like that, or even a halfway house, how do we help them that way? DOC is not creating any pathways to doing that. I I challenge Kiros and the governor to do that. Why are they not doing that? It's just like at York, the, um, the, and and then, um, um, I think Chester had it too, the, the worth program and, they could they really could just expand those because I volunteered in you and worth and the environment I was in was nothing like what I hear it was not cages people were all out we we brought different programs in I mean they had dogs in there uh that they take care of I seen people with musical instrument it was a whole different environment so mm-hmm. if DOC wanted to help people they could because you can move them out of them cages. They don't have to be in those cages. And that's one of the things I challenge the state of Connecticut period is how did we ever get to a place where we thought it was okay to put a people a people in cages? And usually when I ask that question, I never get an answer. How like, how did that happen? And so we have to start there that we thought it was okay to put people in cages, not even talking about the way we're treating them once we put them there. But that that's a whole different story. I got a lot of stuff I wanted to do today in this hour, so I can't stay too far on that. But mm-hmm. there are so many barriers to people getting their life back after they've been incarcerated. And it depends on who you are, because that's another thing I talked about in my testimony for housing. I, I testified about a person who has a job, who, um, who's been, ha- criminal past goes back 20 years, and the credit's good, and that's that's the barrier. Well, you have a record. Yeah, but it's 20 years ago. So, you know, people, people when I testify, and this is how I feel, I feel like, remember uh, the history with African-Americans where the landlord will put a sign on outside the apartment, Negroes do not apply, need not apply. All we've done now, we've took that sign now because it's no longer legal, and we've used credit, 
and background checks to do the same thing, to keep people from being able to, to get their life back. But we, we, we hide behind it's a background check or the credit's not good. But we do that because we know many people in our communities be, that are over-policed and laws are selectively enforced, those people are more likely to have a criminal record. And those are going to be the marginalized black and brown people. So we already know if we over-police those communities, these are the people with the background checks. If they've been incarcerated, they probably don't have good credit. Let's use those two as excuses now instead of saying we, we don't want to rent to black people or, or um, Hispanic people. Just say we, we, we can't rent to people who have a, a criminal background. So we have a lot of work that has to be done, and we have to do it in Harvard. So moving on, uh, one of the things I wanted to put out there for the public, because I, I just became aware of it, is the bail reform. Now, bail reform is something that we've been working on. Well, at least I've been out there working on forever and ever and ever. Now, I just found out recently, say someone's bond is $5,000. People think you either have to get a, a bondsman or pay uh, and which you're not going to get your money back, or you have to pay the five thousand. I recently found out. No, you the state you can bring the money to the jail or to the courthouse seven percent of the bail. And when that person's case is over, you get your money back. I didn't know that, so I'm putting it out there for people who don't realize that they think they have to go to a bondsman and they're not getting their money back. You don't have to do that anymore. Seven percent, take it to the jail take it to the courthouse and that money gets put away until that person's case is over. Once the case is over, you get your money back. So th that's uh, another thing. I try to put stuff out there that people may not know about. Okay, let's quickly talk about um, Ray. Talk about the lawsuit that's going on in Osborne. And then Marisol, you can talk about the lawsuit that's going on or disability against the women in York and the sexual assault. So Ray, can we have you talk about the Osborne lawsuit? Yeah, so um, there's there's been you know issues with the Osborne Correctional Facility for years. Um, there's there's been you know a Facebook page as the close Osborne and so on and so forth. But uh, Mr. Tolliver Tolliver is a case right now, civil nineteen eighty three case Tolliver versus Simple, where Mr. Tolliver is, su is suing uh, the. Connecticut Department of Corrections for the conditions going on over there for uh, Eighth Amendment violations, cruel and unusual punishment, and uh, for individuals who have family members who were housed at Osborne Correctional Institute between the years of November 2013 up until, I believe it was uh, November uh, 2019, you have until April 1st to file um, lawsuits on those conditions. If you are housed in the queues, where the queues are closed, Q1, 2, 3, and 4, which are housing units that were um, closed down by the Connecticut Department of Correction, the conditions in those housing units were deplorable. Um, they had PCB pipes. They had uh, that were individuals were being exposed to. There was large outbreaks of H. pylori there. Um, you know, they went through a situation with malaria there not too long ago. So um, if you have a family or loved one there, it's imperative that you reach out to an attorney and seek uh, some type of consultation um, with regards to uh, that lawsuit. I, I was told, I'm not sure, I'm just uh, reiterating what I was told, that the law firm that is actually 
representing Mr. Mr. Tolliver has has not been uh, willing to take on any more clients. However, the DOC has put that information out in the housing units at the facilities. This is where um, I originally came in contact with the information from individuals that were calling me directly and informing me that, um, you know, the uh, DOC put the memo out. So I'm assuming that a judge has ordered them to um, place those uh, notifications or memorandums in each housing unit so that individuals are aware of the suit that's taking place. Oh, okay. So it, it can they reach out to you for any further information? Yes, they can reach out to me. Um, I will be uh, pulling up the Tolliver case and seeing where it stands right now um, with with the uh, federal uh, the federal courts in Bridgeport. So uh, yeah, next week, early next week, if anyone wants to reach out to me for any information. If we're basically uh, seeking counsel. Oh, okay. I didn't hear the last part, but uh, I did hear that um, they can reach out to you because yeah, I have uh, uh, a couple of letters. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll give them the information that, that I have uh, with okay. regards to seeking counsel or, you know, what the conditions may be of the, of the, uh, of the suit and where it stands at that, at this time that I'm reading it. Thank you. Thank you. I, I I had reached out to a couple of legislators and they wanted information on it too. So I'll have them reach out to you. Thank yes. you. Okay. Marisol. Oh, did you have something else to say? No. Marisol. I was okay. <laughs> okay. Marisol, can you talk uh, about the lawsuit uh, that's um, out there now um, to address uh, sexual assault um, at York facility between um uh, some of the incarcerated women and some of the staff or other incarcerated people. Can you talk a little bit about that? I can talk a little bit about it because I actually was approached by a reporter on this actually a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, she actually is the one who gave me the education and I kind of had to find out a little bit from someone from the inside. And I guess it was a, a report or a complaint that was filed by the disability rights people in Connecticut. And they were talking about there was like over 100 reports of sexual misconduct against the inmates by correctional staff and even other inmates in the facilities. <clears throat> um, they said that, you know, when they reached out to DOC, there was no response. I'm not sure if there's been anything um, that's been addressed on that. I know they talked about in some of the reports, it's like ver verbal sexual harassment, inappropriate touching, you know, that kind of falls within, you know, the category of rape. Um, you know, they, they're talking about this. They think that they've had victims prior to 2022 um, and beyond. You know, they like they're the fact that this is being perpetuated by staff and especially when there was such a big push on the PREA Act, you know, the Prison Rape Elimination Act, you know, they're, they're like it, how they would, you know, there's been talk of this in the past beforehand with sexual inappropriate con. Um, relations between, between incarcerated staff. people and staff yeah absolutely yeah. and you know we we know that there was a case several years back there was something even recently as of like two years ago with um with someone and it's like how does this happen and not why does it take this long to find out is like, i think the overwhelming issue and they they talked about that there were reports going back from 2019 to 2022 mm -hmm. and that doc wouldn't even provide them with the redacted um reports until they they under the uh, 
the Freedom of Information Act that they require they were required to do so. Right, right. So it, it's for it to come to that enormity and being the only female facility in the state. I, that's yeah. As someone who's been a victim of sexual assault, I mean that that's being put in a position where someone has that kind of control over you and you have to worry about that. That's a little troubling. Yeah. More than a little. Yeah. And, and 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 what it did for me when I heard about it, it I I feel like it pe- people on the inside are being empowered to start speaking up about a lot of the things that just became normalized because they felt they had no power to do anything about it. So um, I'm looking to see where that lawsuit goes. Mm. Um, yesterday I was at a public hearing where uh, parole officers want to be classified as peace officers, which are like police officers. They want to have the same powers of arrest to be able to do warrantless searches uh, and to use deadly force if necessary if someone tries to escape. And so they were putting on, you know, a couple of parole officers came on and, you know, as expected, put on this big show. Oh, we're here to help people. Uh, we're, we're very, you know, we're doing such a great job. Uh, I brought up the point that the majority of the, the people in, uh, well, a huge majority of the people that are incarcerated now are there because they were violated for probation or parole, not because they committed a new crime, but because they violated a policy, like maybe someone who was in there with addiction issues uh, relapsed or somebody with mental health issues relapsed and end up getting arrested. And and if you're a helper like parole put on this big picture, you would find a program or something that to help them in that program, not put them back in prison, which is just going to exacerbate what they're already going through. But, you know, again, I think I was the only black person in there that was even talking about this issue. And so that that's what where I say we have to put some onus on ourselves for why we don't get anything done because mm-hmm. they showed up. They showed up and put on this presented this picture like they're doing all this work and you know they should get respected and have more powers and all this stuff but there was nobody to push back on it. Barbara, so I'd like to talk about that because you know I I talk about this um, because so where I live, you know, across the street, there's been a show of force by parole and probation. They come in these unmarked black cars in full tactical gear. Barbara, I'll never forget the first time I was still on probation at the time that happened. And Barbara, I had the I, I was just looking out my window in my my house. And Barbara, all I saw was five cars pull up full like 10 people jump out of these cars, full tactical gear with a dog. And the biggest wave of fear went through me. And all I kept thinking is, oh my God, I'm going back to prison. Now, mind you, they weren't even coming at my house. Yeah, They were going across the street. And then the second time it happened, Barbara, I wasn't even on parole. I wasn't even on probation. I was walking to the front door and I happened to catch two, two people in, in the, and the vest, and the bulletproof vest, moving really fast up, they were walking quick. And you know how staff is. Generally, they tend to move like that when they're, you know, when they're mm-hmm. together or whatever the case may be, they were looking for someone. Mm-hmm. And you're, Barbara, you're talking about parole again, right? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. parole, 
And probation, because you know how sometimes they work in tandem sometimes, depending if they need to extract someone. Mm -hmm. So it's one of these things where I saw them out the corner of my eye. Barbara, I literally dropped my purse, almost dropped to the ground thinking, oh my God, these people were about to tackle me. Again, Barbara, they were beyond my fence. They're not, I wasn't even on parole or probation, any supervision, but but the anxiety that it produces. And let me tell you, when I was on parole and when I was on probation, actually, my ex-husband, you know, threatened to call probation and he called the police. And you know what that's like for people who are on supervision, the fear of going back. You know, he pl- he used that as a source of power against me for almost two years. And Barbara, all I kept thinking is if I walked into the court one day, I didn't think I would be coming back, walking back out. Wow. It's kind of like, you know, that's kind of like one of these things, but it speaks to why some of the people in our community don't want to come and show up and talk about these things because mm-hmm. of the fear that like, even when I bought this place, I didn't want anything. I didn't want uh, probation parole to have any knowledge of where I lived at because you're fearful that once they get that information, the harassment, you yeah. don't want retaliatory behavior. And I think that's what a lot of people are afraid of retaliatory oh, behavior. Yeah, so the picture that they put on that they're so helpful and people yeah, yeah. are successful <laughs> as a result of the work that they do is why they We're should sure. be uh, de- be deserving of this credit. So that's not the story you have either. No. Okay. I, Ray, can scared. you talk about... I just want to bring Ray in for me. Ray, can you talk about... Uh, oh, you're... Ray. You're muted. <laughs> are you with us, Ray? You're muted. I'm, I'm, yeah, oh yeah, I'm listening. I'm listening to her. <laughs> oh, no, I was I was asking you um, the the performance that he put on yesterday for the legislators is that um, the parole and probation are so instrumental and so helpful with people. Uh, they don't want to send people back to jail. It's like a last resort uh, to send to prison. And then um, just wondering, you know, and then Marisol was talking about her experience uh, with yeah. and the fear that they put in people. And I was just wondering, um, have you heard ex- um, those great experiences from um, most people that you know beyond parole or probation? I felt uh, it was confused, but I say, no, you know. Actually, actually I had to, um, it's one young man that's been out on probation, for, I mean, parole for five years. And he's like, Parole is another 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 form of trauma mm. for us, you know, because it's always that that fine line you gotta be walking, and you never know when that. Just like a a, a correction officer may abuse his power, sometimes you have certain parole officers that abuse their power as well. And um, I had an incident just recently where um, I had a young man call me twice on two occasions, two separate occasions, maybe like a month and a half apart, where there were changes going on in the parole officer and they weren't articulating the changes to one another. However, when those changes were being made and they seen um, one parole officer seen that they were being handed this case for this individual, they were calling him and when they weren't getting, they, they didn't get him. So they, they'll leave these voice messages. You need to report down here now immediately or, or you're going to be excounted from parole. And he's like, yo, what did I do? Why do they keep leaving me these messages? Why do they keep threatening me? Why do, and psychologically, it was it was affecting him. Right. And, and he's and like, she- I'm not doing anything. I've been working. I've been, you know, going to see my parole officer. So um, I advised him the second time, 
to not go down there without his attorney. Mm-hmm. And when his attorney went, it, it became clear that, you know, it, it was on their part where they weren't um, being forthwith with information with regards to when a parole officer was sick mm-hmm. or writing down when he was seen and what his next appointment would look like. And I, and I also advise him that every time he goes down there for a, a parole, have his parole officer write the next date and sign a signature on the back of a business card as to when he's supposed to come back. Right. And therefore there won't be no discrepancies and he can't be violated or won't feel like he's being intimidated by them because for their own misunderstandings. Um, and that's not to say that all, all parole officers are like that because right. I was fortunate to have a parole officer that was very understanding of my situation. However, my situation is a unique one. You know, you don't have everyone coming home trying to be an activist or striving to, mm-hmm. you know, assist with others transitioning back into the community like I have. So mm-hmm. um, I think I was giving not not say a, a little leeway because, you know, I was still held to the same standards. But um, I think my walk was a little little, little less light because I, I stood on those principles. I knew what I signed for and I knew what I needed to do in order to become free. And it ultimately right. led to me being uh, early discharged off parole on January 17th this year. Mm, all right. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, so, and I hear you, Maricel, people probably just afraid to come out and and talk about those things. But, you know, that's that's part of my frustration because, like, I'm sitting there, I'm not on probation or parole, don't have none of that experience, but yet I'm trying to talk about it. And they can just dismiss me because here you got uh, several parole officers coming in talking about all the, the great things they're doing for people and how, how they're making life easy for people and how they don't want to put people in prison. It's a last resort. And I'm looking like, Okay, wh- who's backing me up? I'm, you know, so well, that's that's why I, I don't know. That's just my frustration. I understand people where they are, but I also see that that's it makes it hard for me to get some of the stuff mm-hmm. done in Harvard that I want to get done. That's all. And I think it's also where they make the interpretation of what they think is making our life easier. You know, what I'm saying that language and what that shows up like is very different for all of us. You know what they think it is. They they haven't. I think, been, what they, you know, I think the only thing that they possibly can consider with making your life easier is not bringing you back to prison. Yeah. You know, other than that, I mean, what what, what are they doing? I mean, if if you have and and, and this is just me and on, on ethics. If you're a parole officer and you're you, and, and hypothetically you have a client that keeps coming in and pissing dirty, you don't give him the chance to you know become. To digress all the way back to old behaviors, I would I would hope that you are you're, you're not letting him just pass these urinalysis like you're giving him a break and without trying to help him get into a program if he's right. showing you these signs, you know. Right. So that's that's why I, the only thing I can think of is that they're 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 just not bringing you back to prison. Yeah, because years ago, else, years ago that was one of the things I um I talked about in the hearing probation parole is really supposed to be resource people they're supposed to be helping you to get uh housing and health care and jobs and all that kind of stuff but i i don't hear anybody talk about them doing any of that Um, but that was it that was their performance they work hard for the people and yeah 
yeah, they, they work. They, they made referrals to where you should go and look for jobs and all of that. And I, I remember those days because I come from a large family where, you know, um, those in my family had had a, have been system impacted and they parole officers used to pop up at the house and say, you know, you need to go get a job. You don't got a job. Here's a place you need to go look or, or here, you know, you need to go there and come back with the application. Show me that you had the application and that you had the interview and you'll be all right. But um, I, I also believe that parole officers should act in the in the manner of life coaches for for mm-hmm. a lot of our, our citizens returning back into the communities mm-hmm. because you're there to assist. You're just not there to oversee and make sure that you know all the checks and balances that um, one signed on a piece of paper is being adhered to. You're all, you, you're there to see success of your client, right. which means that you don't want them to recidivate. How do you not do that? You should be more hands on with his reintegration back into the community. Mm-hmm. And it's not just forcing him to get a job with an idle threat that right. um, if you if you don't get a job, you know, we're going to put you back in prison. Yeah, because that sounds more like policing. And we, yeah. we get enough policing. And that's one of the things I talked about in my in my testimony. Our communities are over-policed, over-supervised, over and over-surveilled. That's not helping us at all. So just imagine if they were to, if they were to, Give them those powers mm. as peace officers. But you know you what? Know, it looks um, like they're gonna. They looks like they're gonna get it from the hearing yesterday. They, it looks well, like we, they're gonna get it because they put in a, uh, a great performance. They are hardworking for the for the people, and they should get the same respect. Well, you know, like Barbara, that brings me up to something I wanted to bring up to you because you know we talk about this, and it talks about where as we're coming home, this inability to have a voice in the very same community we're coming back home to or with the whole purpose of reintegrating us back into the community, there's no real viable way. Like, you know, one of the things I found interesting that Massachusetts recently did was create a position on the board of pardons and parole for a formerly incarcerated person. Why Mm. doesn't Connecticut do that? Why doesn't Connecticut put somebody who's formerly, who's justice impacted, um, or even better, someone like you who has family who's been just as impacted. Why isn't there a position for you as an advisory p- person to the governor or even the commissioner of corrections? Why is there no positions? You know, we have to fight for these things. Like mm-hmm. I serve on the correctional advisory committee, yes, but we had to fight for that. Like, yeah. like, and, it, and if Stop Solitary wasn't making the, the cri- criteria about who's going to get on that board, you op- absolutely would not have had people that are formerly incarcerated so, making those like, decisions. Ray, Ray being someone who did such a significant amount of time and he's gotten off, he's been discharged off, you know, mm-hmm. for, um, re- services. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you take somebody like Ray, who's a community person, a reentry person, you know, rehabilitated as a mentor? Why not put him in the in capacity of being a commissioner on the boards of pardon? You know what I'm saying? Like, Right. That's an ideal person or even somebody like you. Like, I understand they're concerned about safety and security and they're like, you have to be credentialed. But who better than to someone who's got like 30 years in the system, who's coming back, doing all these things, knows the needs that can speak to that experience when they're making these decisions about who can come home and who can't, you know, or someone like myself. I may not have that kind of lived experience, but we're talking about the mental health, public health. You know what I'm saying? Like there are people like us out here who know these things, they can't argue that we don't have the credentials, whether it's lived experience or some other ways. But if 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 um 
if this Connecticut wanted change, that's who that's who they would reach for. That's exactly mm -hmm. what they look for. But they don't. They don't. Definitely. Um, um, I don't think I don't think security is the issue. I, I mean, I've I've been in Brooklyn Correctional Facility to do several programs down there. I just left there on the twenty first for Black History Month, doing a um showing a documentary and having a talk with the young men over there, and it was eighty eight men in attendance. I'm also uh, going into Manson Youth doing program was over there with, with next level empowerment program. So I don't think security is an issue. I um I seriously think that um having someone me like like myself in that position who's uh been in majority of the facilities in the state, um, level four and some level threes, uh, I know what to look for. I have an eye for what should be there and what shouldn't be there. And mm -hmm. I think that's that's the thing that they're afraid of. You know, a lot of times they don't want to implement true change. I mean, they just want right. to put things on paper, but um, I, I'm one that will go in and hold them accountable. Mm -hmm. And exactly. Go ahead real quick. because we got Speaking to Ray's point, I remember watching one of the juvenile, pro, uh, juvenile parole hearings last year. And I remember seconds. that one of the commissioner people didn't even know the programs that York had to offer for drug rehabilitation and on which side that was vital that they said, well, you should have taken that, but you don't even know what programs are offered. Well, we just got told we have 90 seconds. So I'm so sorry. Um, we didn't even get to talk about everything I wanted, but we'll have to do this again. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming on and, and forming the community. And maybe we'll have a community meeting soon, uh, Stop Solitary and, and um, Next Level hosting together. Um, so thank you so yes. much. Love you guys. Definitely. Love have you. Take care. As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you're stressing, but you're gonna be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains, haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. Cause this is my road. You're listening to the Tom Fickler Show on WNHHLP 103.5 SM, your home for community radio.